We at Harlem Baptist Church want to welcome you as you join in listening to the word preached with us. We hope that you are both challenged and encouraged as we hear from the word of God. We pray that through this recording, you would know the truth of the gospel and that you would find life in Christ. If you don't have a church home, you are always welcome to join us. If you do, we pray this would not be a substitute, but instead a supplement to the preaching of your home church. Information about Harlem Baptist, as well as other sermons and resources, can be found at our website, www.harlanbaptist.org. Well, good morning. And what a wonderful morning it is um, to be led in worship in such wonderful ways, the truths we've already heard and sang about. Um, you're just going to hear it again. I'm not going to tell you anything new because the gospel is that good. So this morning we will be reading from Psalm 119. If you know anything of it, we're not going to read it all. <laughs> we're just going to read verses 33 through 40. So if you will turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119, we're going to read verses 33 through 40, and it will be up on the screen, and I will be reading from the um, New American Standard, so the text may differ just a little bit. The psalmist says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you again and you open your word, we know that your spirit teaches. We know that you lead us into all understanding. And that's what we pray this morning. Eyes to see, ears to hear, that hearts may be changed. The weak may be strengthened. The dead may be brought to life. Lead us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, after uh, this series of talking about a disciples, um, I just thought it'd be interesting to, let's, let's think about the life of a disciple. Well, one of the things we're commanded to do, and one of the things we do as Christians is that we pray. Um, and what better way than to go to the Psalms? Now, during all of this that's happened, we've, we've spent from Psalm 90 to 100 in the Psalms, so we've, we've been there for a while, and it's just so good. We think of the Psalms, it's just an expression of beauty. It's, it's taking our words and shaping them in the most beautiful way that we can imagine. So we see these personal expressions that he's trying to draw out. Now, like I said, this is a long song, okay? It's like Mount Everest of, of the Psalms. Um, it's a wonderful psalm that I would encourage you to read through it, to pray through it, um, not only today, but then um, anytime you go to pray, this is a wonderful one to, to go to. 
So we're only looking at a small glimpse here, and we're sort of catching him in the midst of his plea. So if you know anything about this psalm, you know it's all about God's Word. In fact, it's debated, but there's about five verses that don't strictly refer to God's Word out of all the verses, over a hundred. Um, so the emphasis is on God's Word. So we catch him here, and we have to jump in. Okay, he's, he's praying, it's, he's meditating, and he's, we're catching him in this deep emotion. He's thinking about it, he's praying, he's thinking, he's praying, and he's just going back and forth. And it's just a wonderful thing that we get to see. So one of the things we can't do is think, well, the commandments, commandments, commandments. Well, we have to see what he's really saying here. Okay, if you think, oh, it's just do this, do this, you're going to miss it. Okay, like the Pharisees missed it. So we want to look at the heart of the psalm. So in speaking about this, have you ever met anyone that's said, you know, I just want to live? Okay, younger people in general, my generation, maybe younger, you know, just like you get any kind of free time, you're just like, man, I just want to go live life. I just want to go do this. I want to go, I want to do this. I want to do this. And, and that's actually in each one of our hearts when we think about it. You know, maybe there's a period of time where you're not like that, but something just yearns for more. And we know that there's something more to life. We know that there's something here that it just, there has to be something beyond what we can see and what we can experience right now. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in our hearts. So we see the psalmist seeking this and living this out in this prayer. So the main idea of all of this is that a disciple finds life in God's Word. Keeping the disciple um, theme here, a disciple finds life in God's Word. But if you think about that, there's a problem. The problem is that if I say that, that means life is not found apart from God's Word. And the Bible strictly says that, and it says no one is good, no, not one. And God is only good. So what's set up already is that there's only one source of what is good. But we, in our natural state, don't seek it. This eternity that we're longing for is beyond us. This life that we want is not... But you may be fighting back already saying, I'm happy, I, I live a full life, I'm good. But why do you say that? Why do we, each one of us, believer and non-believer alike, why do we seek for more? Why do we keep grabbing? Why do we keep going back to the same and wanting more and it keeps, it seems like, disapparating in, like in our hands, it disappears? Why is enough not enough? Or maybe you're saying, yeah, I know God, he and I are just fine, we're best, best friends, but how do you know God? And we have to know God in His Word. Because that's how He's revealed Himself. He being God and us being man, His creation. There's a separation. He has to reveal Himself. We can't find our way to God. He has to make Himself known. And He has through His Word. And that's what the psalmist is playing here. So the main thrust of this, what we're going to see is explicitly in 36, and verse 37 is that life is found when God redirects our gaze. Life is found when God redirects our gaze. So, no matter who you are, what you've done, believer, unbeliever, it doesn't matter where you are, or if you're listening online, or, or whatever it is, this is for you. This psalm is for you. It can meet you where you are. So, we're going to observe, we're going to hop in, experience this, observe some things that we see in this plea. 
Why is he fleeing? Because there's a need that only God can satisfy. And it has to go beyond ourselves. That's why when we express this need, we keep reaching for something because we know that it's not in us. But what is this that we need to reach for? What is this that we long for? So we're going to see the psalmist in his plea. We're going to see four things. We're going to see a plea for learning. A plea for learning. We're going to see a plea for obedience. We're going to see a plea for desire. And we're going to see a plea for response. So let's jump in and let's look at this plea for learning. Let's look at verse, verses 33 and 34. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. So let's notice how he starts. He's saying, teach me, O Lord. Okay, this is a humility. This is humbling. He's coming and he's just saying, teach me. He's crying out, teach me. He's in dire need. There's a need already established here. He doesn't start, oh God, most high. No, he's, teach me. Okay, he's got nothing at this point. Teach me. He wants to be taught. He knows that he needs to learn. But what does he ask? The way of your statutes. Teach me, O oh Lord, the way of your statutes. I love this. Like it's, it's not your statutes. It's not do this, this, this. Okay, like we've already said, we know the Pharisees. That's all they wanted to do. Give me something I can do. Give me something I can do. Okay, and we can be like that too. But he's saying, not statutes, the way of your statutes. But what does that mean? It's a way of life. It's a way of living. These statutes, they're permanent, fixed, prescribed, the way to live. God ordained us to live a certain way. God has made us to live a certain way so that we could experience life. But he's saying, you know what it means to live. But I've failed. And you must teach me. He's calling out. He sees what's good. And he knows that he's not there. Okay? He knows that he's not there. He sees the need. But he keeps going. What does he say next? And I shall observe it to the end. If you go too fast, you're going to miss this because this is just wonderful how it interacts with the first. He's saying, teach me, and I will learn. So let's think about your teachers that you've had in the past. Okay, each of us have had bad teachers, ones who just give you stuff to do, and you just sort of sit there. You've had mediocre teachers, but then you've had the good ones. Okay, they make you work a little bit, and you actually learn something. You're brought to a new understanding of something. They take you where you are and bring you to a new level. And that's what's going on here. So think about that good teacher that you've had in school. Maybe you struggled with the subject and then they, they came to you and then you actually learned. Maybe it was a math class. Okay? Not many people like math, but then you have maybe that one math teacher and you go and you understand and you just feel so good about yourself. I think about when I was in college and I was a, a music major and I hopped in, and then you go from Harlan to a, a much bigger place. I'm just like, man, I can't play my instrument. These guys are, are awesome. I jump into orchestra, and I'm reading keys with sharps, and I'm like, what's a sharp? Um, and it's just overwhelming. And then there was this teacher. He was a trumpet professor at the time. and um, I went up to him and, and said, hey, can I just have a lesson? 
And he's like, yeah, sure. He's just a really chill guy. Um, and I met with him. And within the course of 30 minutes, um, it was just like my mind was freed. I wasn't caught up. I was encouraged. I was playing the best I ever had. I, I was just like, as I left that room and I was walking on the clouds. I felt like I could play anything. I just want to go up and like, play you know Wagner etudes uh, the rest of the day and like you know break windows or whatever just you know I was just I was just ready and that's the effect a good teacher can have they inspire you they take you to a new level so that you understand and you live it out and that's what he's saying about God he's saying God teach me and I will learn that's what that's what we need to remember if you ask God to teach you you'll learn you will learn. He is the perfect teacher. He is the ultimate teacher. Christ said in John 6, 45, you will be taught of God. And we can think about Christ in this because He's the fulfillment of all of this when we look at this psalm. Christ sought to learn. He learned obedience in what He suffered. He submitted Himself to the Father's will. He learned the Scriptures and He obeyed them. Let's keep going. Verse 34, give me understanding that I may observe your law. You can already notice it's sort of similar to teach me. Give me understanding. He's, he's acknowledging God. God, you are the source of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. So it has to come from you. Just as you would have to draw water from a well. It's the only place you can find water. You have to go there to get it. So in order to have understanding, to observe his law, he has to go to God. We have to go to God. So he acknowledges his lack and he has to go to the source. But yet again, he doesn't, he doesn't stay there. I love how these, these second statements, and if in your Bible you have them organized in such a way to sort of help you understand the, the poetry here, the second line interacts with the first. But what does he say? And keep it with all my heart. It's not and keep it. And keep it with all my heart. We use that phrase, don't we? I put all my heart into that. Um, I put all my heart into raising my kids. I put all my heart into that cake I made. I put all my heart into um, this or that. And that's what he's saying here. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. It's not a simple understanding. It's not like, okay, yeah, got it, good. Yeah, and no change. No, it's just like an overwhelming, lifelong trajectory. It's commitment. It's Fulfillment in Him. Keep it with all my heart. This is a new life that He's praying for. One that He doesn't have in Himself. Let's think of Christ again. Christ is the teacher. Think about when He went up to Jerusalem with, with His parents. And He was sitting in the temple. And He was talking about the Scriptures. And all the elders are just like, Whoa. <laughs> what, you know, what in the world is going on here? Think about his ministry. He taught everything he did. He taught, he taught everyone. He went around teaching. He was the good teacher. And think about Nicodemus. He was the leader of the, the Jews, okay, the leader of the synagogue. And what does he say to him? He says, Don't, aren't you supposed to be the one that knows this? He's just pointing out just like simple flaws in Nicodemus' understanding. But Jesus is the one who had to teach. He was the one that fulfilled this. He is the good teacher. He's the teacher we need to cry out to. And as Jesus left, he promised his disciples that his spirit would come and would guide us into all 
truth. So we see Christ, and in Christ, by faith in Him, He gives us His Spirit, which teaches us the things of God, and we are taught of God. So we see this plea for learning. Okay, There's a need there, and He's driving. And notice how He transitions next. We have this plea for obedience. A plea for obedience. Let's read the next two verses. Make me walk in the path of Your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Okay, this is just an, a naked confession. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Think about that. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. You don't say that. You don't say to someone, make me walk. Okay, you've got to get up and walk. But what is he saying? Make me obedient. He's saying, Lord, make me obedient. Why? Because he can't. Why is it important for him to be obedient? Because God demands it. We are created by God. We are his creation. Okay. Not the secular worldview that says, you know, you're just stardust or you're just, you know, something that, you know, formed together by accident over millions and millions of years. Okay, that's just, I mean, that's just foolish. But you're created by God for a purpose. There's a way we are to live. There is life. That life we're longing for. There is life. And it comes by living a certain way in relationship to God. But there's this inability. He's saying, make me walk because he's unable. We think of Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. Not only that, we rebel against him in our hearts. We have a sinful nature. It's not one that desires God. It's not one that delights in God. It's not one that follows God. It's not one that cares about God. But there was one person who was obedient. There was one who walked in the path of His commandments. Jesus Christ. The only one obedient. And by faith in Him, we are enabled through the working of the Holy Spirit to obey and we've got to remember this okay don't get caught up here we have to remember that christ is the fulfillment of this we have to remember that christ was obedient so that we might be counted righteous we think of second corinthians 5 21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of god in him that great exchange his goodness his fulfillment our wickedness. And then what does he say after that? Make me walk in the path of your commandments. Make me obedient. Why? For I delight in it. There's joy here. Joy not found in the world. Joy found in obedience to God. You're saying, well, no, no, no. I just, not a list of things to do. No, no. That's not it. It's a life. And obedience to that life gives you joy. It's what you were made for. It's what we long for. It's what relieves your conscience. Okay, each of us, we've, our conscience is that thing in us. It's, telling, it's affirming us. It's condemning us. and Whatever we do. But when we're obedient, when you put your faith in Christ and by the Spirit's power, you're enabled. You have new desires. You want to learn the Word. You want to pray. You want to share the Gospel. Then your conscience uplifts you. 
You see your obedience. You, you love Him because you know you are obeying His commandments by His power. You've been given a new life. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's a life, this life of obedience. And then we get to the real heart in verses 36 and 37. I'll read those again. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Think of the word inclined. Okay, we know that's just, think of a hill that inclines. It just goes up. So he's saying his heart must go up. It needs to go up. This is a confession. This is a call for help. And he's saying that he settled on lower level things. Things that don't matter. But he's saying his, ha- his heart has to go up. His desires have to go up. His life must go up. Up to what? Your testimonies. The proof of what God has said and accomplished. God's revealing of Himself. This is the height of heights. All that is noble, worthy, and honorable, all that is good comes from God. He is up. He is beyond. He is holy. He is above and beyond all we can ask or think. He is the one that is higher. He has to incline our hearts. He has to bring us up because we're low. And there's nothing higher. And think about it. His testimony, His Word made flesh, which is Christ. And when He came, He fulfilled the law. He did all of these things. He was the proof. He fulfilled the law. He did all of it. And He lived for our righteousness. And we know in Philippians 2, as we just looked at um, last week, that His name because of all that he did, his name is now above all names. There is nothing higher than the testimony of God, which is Christ Jesus. There's nothing higher because all must bow the knee to him. How could anything be higher than what has to bow the knee to Christ Jesus, our Lord? So he's saying, incline my heart to your testimonies. Bring me up. Let me see it. Let me go to what is up. But he contrasts that. And not to what? Selfish gain. Dishonest gain. King James Version says covetousness. So we have to think this is the highest of highs. Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of the Word of God. God's testimonies. God Himself. Nothing is higher. But he contrasts it with the lowest of lows. Which is what? Ourselves. He has a holy abhorrence of Himself. There's nothing in Him. We know this, but we deny it. It's this holy hatred of self. It's saying that there's just not good in me. There has to be good. That's why we reach for stuff. Because something good has to be outside. That's why we keep grabbing. That's why we keep reaching our hands out. But there's a holy abhorrence of Himself. In the scriptures, this is called the old man, the natural man, the unbeliever. And the, old, the unbeliever, the natural man, the old man, is only worried about one thing. The unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. You're only worried about yourself. Nothing else. Doesn't matter. 
Now, that doesn't mean that good can't come from unbelievers. That doesn't mean that they can't do good things. And you see a lot of charitable organizations. You see, you know, this and that um, in our society. But in the end, their motivations aren't pure. Because they're not seeking the life that's in God. The way we're supposed to live. So, as we think about this, there's this natural state in each one of us. But the new creature in Christ, by faith in Christ, we struggle here. Okay, we struggle with this selfish desire. This is the natural man, the flesh that keeps fighting against us as we're putting to death the deeds in us and seeking the life that's in Christ. And the believer, you might see this and say, I blew it. I'm right there with you. We blow it all the time. We fail. But you know where our strength is? We remember. We fix our gaze on the author and perfecter of our faith. That's where our strength is. We fail. We struggle. And then we look in and we're just like, gosh, this is terrible. I'm just up. And then you find yourself in the place of the psalmist. That's the point. You find yourself here and you look to Christ. And then you remember. You look to the cross and say, I died there. I died with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. Think about that. He was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That's where our strength is. We've got to look at Christ. We've got to incline our hearts. He must incline our hearts to the testimony of Christ and get our eyes off of ourselves and what we can get for ourselves. But the religious person, the legalist, the carnal Christian, if you will, which is a sort of goes against itself, but this person claims Christ with no commitment. Just lip service. Like the Pharisees. There's no commitment. There's no self-denial. There's no cross. Didn't Jesus say, take up your cross? Follow me. So, there has to be an incline for His testimonies as we turn away. It's like faith and repentance, that two-sided coin. Faith, repentance. Okay, To turn up, you must turn away. Okay, That's what He's saying. That is the heart of His desire here. And then verse 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity or worthless things. Why does he say that? Because it's his tendency. We should say it too because it's ours. Our culture is so vain and we know this. When you're on social media and literally everything is just um, some kind of quick fix. Uh, you look on YouTube or whatever. You've got all these lists Top ten things you got to do, you know. Um, how to make a cake in three easy steps. I probably need to look at something like that. Uh, but, you know, all these grand ideas, these, these, you know, fix it all of a sudden, instant gratification. You need stuff. Um, gosh, 
some of the commercials you see, it's just like your life's not complete until you get this bar of soap. I mean, it's just silly, isn't it? It's just absolutely silly. But we buy into it. Why? Because our eyes look upon it. Another thing is that feelings. Okay, you just got to feel a certain way. You, you know, it's just this amorphous, you know, whatever it's just trying to get you to, to buy into. And if you look at it long enough, you'll get bought into it. Don't think you're that strong. Okay, the eyes are the windows of our souls. Okay, Jesus said that the, light, the eyes are the lamp of the body. Okay, so what we behold has a direct impact on us. So what does the psalmist do in light of all this vanity that he sees? And all the vanity that we see, what does he do? What does he turn to? What do we turn to? He says, and revive me in your ways. Now this would be the only verse that would not explicitly say a word about God's word, but it's God's ways, and God's ways are revealed in His word. So he's saying, life is found in God's ways. So God must redirect our gaze in order to have life. Jesus came to give abundant life. He said it. He wasn't hiding it. That's what He offers to every single one of us. I have come to give you abundant life. No matter what you've done, where you are, He reached out to those in dire need. And He says, I give life. And we can think of John 17, 3. The wonderful true Lord's Prayer. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now in that, we look back through this in the lens of the cross. Eternal life, that they may know you. Not that you may do stuff. Not that you might have stuff. But that we might know Him. Live in relationship with Him. That's eternal life. That's true life, to know God and Jesus Christ, whom He has sent. This isn't quantity. Okay? We don't want to fall into the trap of thinking eternal life, true life, only happens when you die. It's quality. Eternal life, quality life. Knowing God through Christ is life. Yeah, we struggle here. It's going to get better when we die. But life is knowing God through Christ. And as I've said before, Jesus is the manifestation of and fulfillment of God's ways. So we think about what our eyes behold. Think about just how our senses directly impact us. We can think of each sense. So if you smell something, if you taste something, you touch something, hear something, you see something. Smelling, if you're around a dumpster, it doesn't smell too pleasant. You get really repulsed at that. You, if you've ever tasted spoiled milk, you've not, okay, by accident, and it's just, you know, just spit it out automatically because it's absolutely disgusting. Touch a hot stove, you just yank back. You, you hear profanity. If you have kids, the first thing you do is cover their ears. If you see violence or anything, if you have young ones again, you would cover their eyes. You look away. We don't want to see violence. We don't want to hear hateful things because we know it has a direct impact on our soul. What we see, what we take in, directly impacts our person. But think of the good things. Smelling a flower. Tasting a delicious steak. Uh, or if you're 
into vegetables. You grill something else. I don't, I don't know. Um, you touch something, maybe silk. You listen to something beautiful like Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And being from Harlan, you look around and you see the beautiful mountains. Um, absolutely breathtaking. So he's asking here, he's saying, shift my eyes from the unpleasant to the pleasant, from the draining to the filling, from the ugly to the beautiful, from the perishing to the lasting, from dark to light, from evil to good, from death to life, from self to Christ. The psalmist's eyes must shift because God must redirect his gaze. He must redirect our gaze to look upon Jesus Christ. And then we go to the end. The end of this small section. And he, he doesn't slow down. Okay, This, this prayer, he, he pushes for boldness. He's pleading for response in these last few verses. Verse 38. Establish your word to your servant. He says confirm. What is he saying? God, confirm your truth. God, make your truth happen. So he is pleading the promises of God so that God will fulfill them. Think about that. That's how he, he goes to his prayer. He confesses his need and he prays that God would fulfill his promises. And that's where our strength is. How do we pray? Do you pray? Why do you pray? Have you ever heard the prayer of a new believer? It's just beautiful. You just, you just hear like these, these heartfelt longings and there's really no structure and they say some silly things, but you, just the heart of it's wonderful. But our prayers, we can tend to throw some empty phrases and meaningless words like Gentiles who really don't know anything about God. But our prayers have to mean something. And they mean a lot because we have His Word. We have His promises. We are His as believers in Christ. So we use what He has said, the good things that He's promised. All the promises of God in Christ are yes in Him. That's where our strength is. So we have to remember the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee's like, thank you that I'm not like this person. Okay, We, we don't want to do that. Thank you that I'm not one of those people out there just destroying stuff careful lest any of us fall be careful that I'm not like that but the tax collector said you know have mercy on me God a sinner that's prayer that's what he's doing here that's what we need to do I love what Calvin said about this he said this about prayer the sole end and legitimate use of prayer is that we may reap the fruits of God's promises Whence it comes to pass that they commit sin who utter vague and incoherent desires, the prophet allows not himself to wish anything but what God hath consented, condescended to promise. Okay. So what that means is that when God promises something, God's eternal, God's perfect, when He promises something, it's good and it's better than what we can, what we can think, what we can imagine. Don't ask for things that are passing away. Ask for what is yes in Him. The true good. The true life. 
in Christ as that which produces reverence for you. So prayer is humbling. He started humble and he's saying, God, make your words happen. Produce this reverence in me. I see your awesome power in how you respond, in how you bring about your promises. You know, we think of taking someone at their word. When someone fails to do what they've promised, you're just like, eh, they're not a person of character. But the problem is, each one of us are like that. We failed in a certain way, but not God. Everything He's promised has come to be. He's done magnificent things, especially coming in Christ to save us, to love the unlovable. So listen to the words of David as he speaks of God's love in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. This is what he says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So what he's saying here is that God has compassion on those who fear him. We revere him. We come to him in humility and brokenness. And he doesn't chastise us. He doesn't bear against us like an angry school teacher. No, he receives us in love. He gives us compassion. But then David continues. For he himself knows our frame. He knows how weak we are. But he doesn't stop there. He is mindful that we are but dust. Do we remember that our greatness does not exceed a speck of dirt? Why would we think some of the stuff that we're reaching for and grabbing for can be of any value when God, who made us from dirt, promises life in Him. Turn your eyes to Him. He continues in verse 39, Turn away my reproach, which I dread. Well, what is he saying here? Well, he's saying that because of his faithfulness to God and to His Word, and you can see throughout the rest of the psalm, that there is reproach from enemies, unbelievers, the nations against Him. People just hate Him. Okay, there's this disgrace, this rebuke, this reproval that comes from others. And it's inevitable, it's painful, and it's dreadful, and he hates it. But what does he say? For your ordinances are good. He's saying, God, your authority is the only good authority. I'll submit to that. It's necessary. It's life-giving. But there are consequences sometimes to that. But he still submits to God. And then in the last verse, Verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts. Here he's calling out for God's attention. He's saying, look at me. Pay attention to me. Now, do your prayers have that boldness? Are we that bold? Do we know that we can come in boldness because of Christ? He's coming in boldness and he's saying, I long for for your precepts. Precepts being his guiding principle. So he's saying, God, I'm crying out for your guidance. I want you to lead me. I want you to guide me. Revive me through your righteousness. So he ends with life in God's righteousness. What is morally perfect and just. And we can find this in Romans 3, 21 and 22. 
the righteousness of God. But now apart from the law of righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So in here, the righteousness of God is found apart from trying to do stuff. It's found apart from the law. He saw the law. He had the law. He had less Bible than we do, but he saw it, and he knew he failed, so what did he do? He cried out to the lawgiver. He cried out to God. And God made the manifest righteousness in Christ. He made Christ the righteousness, so that faith in him, for all who believe, we can be saved by his life. And now Christ stands as the perfect Son of God, the mediator for us when we fail. So he's crying out for righteousness. It's God's righteousness to which the psalmist pleads for life. And so it's the same for us. We plead for life through Christ's righteousness. We don't have any. Okay? We don't have any. We have to be brought to that point. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Have you started there? When you see God, you realize that. Okay. Think about all the instances in Scripture when the men of God came into the presence of God. Even in Revelation, it's like a, a chorus and a song. The elders just keep falling on their faces. I mean, that's what God does. We fall before Him and we plead for mercy. And He gives it. So look in this psalm at the faith, at the brokenness, at the zeal, the sincerity and the reformation, this desire for change of the psalmist. And in this, we know we can go boldly to God. But we can't hold anything back because Christ gave up everything. So must we. So in this psalm, we see that life is not found apart from Christ. But the good news is that He gives life to whosoever will believe in Him. Whoever comes to Him. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, if you come to Him, He will give life to you. And this morning life has been revealed to you in Christ in the Word. We have the Word. It's such a privilege. We have an embarrassment of riches right before us. But what we see here is that life is found not in independence. And what you can get for yourself, Okay, we know that, that strategy, keep reaching, it's going to keep disappearing, you're going to keep grabbing I'm going to keep grabbing. But life is dependence. These pleas for life, this learning, this plea for obedience, this plea for desire, this plea for response is a plea to God for the life that only He can give. He's seen God and He's crying out for life as God has revealed it. So we notice these, they just connect seamlessly. You read the rest of the psalm, you back up and read it, it's just... I mean, you can't stop. You just read through it and you just got to keep going. Like, it's just so hard not to just keep reading. Like, it's just awesome. So, this powerful, life giving plea that the psalmist prays here, that he pleads to God for, is how we need to pray. He came into contact, con he came into contact with God's word. And because of that, he became aware of himself. So, when we become aware of ourselves, we also cry out to God. 
The unbeliever becomes the believer when God opens his eyes. When he turns our gaze to Christ. There is life. There is hope. There is peace. And believer, when God turns our eyes back to Christ, we remember his glory. We praise. We rejoice. We are encouraged. So as we look at this psalm, Psalm 119 in its entirety is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because God must redirect our gaze to Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed this way. Jesus lived this way. Jesus is the righteousness of God that has to be ours to be restored. He came and lived and died for you so that you can experience true life in Him. Eternal life. Not this perishing and passing life. So as we think about this, we're seeing that as God had to redirect the gaze of the psalmist, He has to redirect our gaze. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. Shout for joy with the psalmist. Join his prayer here. Ask him to learn, obey, desire, respond. Drop everything and run to him. He wants to hear from you. Use his prayer as your ammo for heaven. Let's pray.